This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Sometimes we wonder, dear listener, what good it does to talk about the things we talk about, even when it turns out, by turning around and looking back at the last decade or two, that we've been right a lot. I mean, we have been. Although sometimes we we, we can't help but despair. I look at the photo that's uh, a few feet away of, of Mount Shasta, which now has no snow on it for the first time in recorded history, possibly for the first time since the last ice age. And you think, well, we don't seem to be winning the battle on global warming now, do we? But I guess, I guess it's worth talking about the fact that, well, it's a real thing. It really is going on. The people that deny it are, well, dishonest and or stupid. There, I said it. But you know, one thing we reported on on this show, I guess it was last year, it's a while back, was the fact that ExxonMobil, back in the 1980s, commissioned a study of where we were headed in terms of uh, fossil fuel consumption, CO2 levels, etc., And I need to revisit that because I have an article from Slate magazine, which is titled The Evil List. This was produced in January of 2020, and I think we made some reference to it back at the time. But it asked which tech companies are really doing the most harm, and it listed the 30 most dangerous ranked by the people who know. And it's worth quoting from. It starts out by saying maybe it was fake news, Russian trolls, the Cambridge Analytical, or Travis Kalnick's conniption in an Uber or the unmasking of Theranos or all those Twitter Nazis and racist Google results and conspiracy theories on YouTube. Though activists, academics, reporters, and regulators had sent up warning flares for years, it wasn't until quite recently that the era of enchantment with Silicon Valley ended. The list of scandals over user privacy and security, over corporate surveillance and data collection, over fraud and foreign propaganda and algorithmic bias, to name a few, was as unending as your Instagram feed. There were hearings, resignations, investigations, major new regulations in Europe, and calls for new laws at home. There was an industry that insisted it now valued privacy and safety, but still acted otherwise. The tech industry didn't intoxicate us like it did a few years ago, which led them taking a look at tech companies that were doing evil, and tech companies that were being the most evil. They were somewhat loose in their definition of what was a tech company, which allowed ExxonMobil to make the list. It came in at number 10, actually. I don't think it's worth making mention of it. Number 10, ExxonMobil. Year merged, 1999. Chairman and CEO Darren Woods. What it is, the world's largest oil refinery, which has spent millions of dollars to cast doubt on climate science, and O, which actually pitches itself as a technology company. In the 1970s and 1980s, as we just alluded to, Exxon hired scientists to conduct internal studies on climate change well before it became a mainstream issue. Upon discovering that carbon emissions were affecting global temperatures, the company did not change course, but rather worked to spread misinformation on climate science and lobbied to prevent the U.S. from joining international environmental treaties like the 1990 Kyoto Protocol. The article in Slate quoted Bryant Merchant of One Zero as saying that Exxon is responsible for contributing mightily to warming, but it has long sponsored and organized and institutionalized efforts to spread denial about the root of the problem. Keep in mind, as bad as that is, that only earned them spot number 10. And since bagging on tech is something that we like to do in this program because we are completely in sync with this article in Slate, 
which admitted that separating out the meaningful threats from the noise is hard to do. They ask, is Facebook really the danger to democracy it looks like? Is Uber really worse than the system it replaced? Isn't Amazon's same-day delivery worth it? What harms are real and which are hypothetical? Has the tech lash gotten it right? And which of these companies is really the worst? Which ones might be, well, evil? They noted, we don't mean evil in the mustache-twirling burn-the-world-from-a-secret-lair sense. Well, mostly we don't mean that, but rather in the way Googlers once swore to avoid mission drift, respect their users, and spurn short-term profiteering, even though the company now regularly faces scandals in which it has violated its users' and workers' trust. Noted Slate, we mean ills that outweigh conveniences. We mean temptations and poison pills and unanticipated outcomes. Which brings us to the list. Slate sent out ballots to a wide range of journalists, scholars, advocates, and others who've been thinking critically about technology for years, and they asked them to speak out about which tech companies they were the most concerned about. And doggone it, I thought I would just do the top 10, but I'm going to have to jump around because some of these really sort of leap out at me, like number 30, MSpy. It was founded in 2010. Founder is Andrei Shamanovich, and it is a phone spying software company that allows users to monitor other persons' messages, locations, social media, browsing histories, calls, and other digital activity. It is marketed to parents. The product is essentially the ultimate cyber-stalking tool. Now, I don't know how easy it is for someone to grab a hold of MSpy and then find out what you're doing on your phone, but maybe I don't want to know. Number 29 on the list was a company called Celebrite. It was founded in 1999. Co-CEOs Yossi Carmel and Ron Serber It's a forensics company based in Israel that breaks into personal devices. The cost to unlock a phone is $1,500 on behalf of its clients, which are often law enforcement or other government entities. Doesn't sound too bad, but in 2017, authorities in Burma arrested two Reuters journalists who were covering the genocide of Rohingya Muslims. And yes, I know Burma is currently being called Myanmar, but... I think that's what the junta's renamed it. I'm going to stick with Burma. At any rate, a police officer who had evidently received training from Celebrite used that company's technology to infiltrate the journalist's phones. The government then used the documents that the officer found as evidence in a trial against the reporters who got sentenced to seven years in prison. Nice! How about number 25, MegVI? M-E-G-V-I-I, founded in 2011, co-founder and CEO Kui Yin. It's a $4 billion deep learning AI company focused on facial recognition that will soon debut on the Hong Kong stock market. This article was written in 2020, in which the Trump administration blacklisted in October for allegedly abetting efforts to suppress Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Peace notes that the Chinese government has used this technology to track down criminals as part of its Skynet system, which uses 170 million security cameras and reportedly was once able to locate a BBC reporter in seven minutes. I would like to know more about that. Here's a surprising one. Number 24, Airbnb. Founded in 2008, co-founder Brian Chesky. A lodging platform that makes it cheaper and easier to plan that weekend getaway, but also diminishes long-term housing options and causes rent hikes in neighborhoods around the world. In 2018, the New Orleans Housing Rights Group, Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative, released a study indicating that Airbnb was exacerbating the city's shortage of long-term housing and displacing residents in low-income neighborhoods. The report found that investors were purchasing New Orleans properties, evicting the tenants, and converting them into short-term rental spaces, also known as 
Airbnb. In Bywater, a neighborhood with one of the highest concentrations of short-term rental properties in New Orleans, the median listing price to rent a three-bedroom house rose 72% from 2009 to 2015. You might want to think about that next time you set out to book your lodging via Airbnb. How about number 20, 8kun, formerly 8chan, year founded 2013, owner Jim Watkins. It's described as the anything awful goes message board founded for users who felt they couldn't fly their edge sword flags on slightly less vile 4chan. 8chan was deplatformed by its service providers, including Cloudfare, in August following the massacre of 22 people in an El Paso, Texas Walmart. That was the third time in 2019 that a shooter posted a racist manifesto on 8chan before setting out to kill people. And Mr. McMillan believes that this is one way that QAnon gets its message out. I suspect that's true. Oracle came in at number 19, cloud computing and database management company. Oracle apparently acquired the Java programming language in 2010 and proceeded to sue Google for infringing on copyrights. Google had previously rewritten Java APIs, which are lines of code that allow different programs to communicate with one another. They quoted Cory Doctorow of the Electronic Frontier Foundation as saying that Oracle's theory is bonkers, has been propped up by a huge, expensive, shadowy AstroTurf campaign. Yeah, it takes a lot to make me feel like Google's being victimized by a bully, but Oracle has managed it. And no, I don't know enough to weigh the merits of, you know, JavaScript and, you know, what, what would constitute a copyright infringement, but apparently this is kind of a great land grab by Oracle is all I can say. And not necessarily a fair one. Anyway, I'm going to skip ahead to the, the top 10. Well, maybe the top eight. Twitter came in at number eight. Founded in 2006, CEO's Jack Dorsey. Slate notes that the respondents say Twitter's being used by the President of the United States to threaten war crimes. Before long, long before that, it, and Facebook and YouTube, contributed to the degradation of public discourse by rewarding people's worst instincts, impulsivity, cruelty, insincerity, and instant gratification. Well, other than that, though, it's doing okay. Microsoft came in at number seven, mostly for its uh, collaboration with the Chinese government to um, do what the Chinese government wants to do. Apple came in at number six, in part for what it, uh, its deference to the Chinese Communist Party and the fact that it pays too little taxes to the U.S. government. Apple also apparently fights the right to repair movement that uh, allows people to fix their broken equipment rather than buy new stuff. Number five was Uber. We do want to note that Uber spent $200 million, a record in the history of California ballot initiatives, to overturn the state law that had been passed that prompted their employees to be considered as employees, not independent contractors. The respondent to Slate noted that it's hard to think of a company that has shown more disdain for governmental authority or for the safety and welfare of its drivers, riders, and employees. Ouch! And then we come to the top four. Number four is Palantir Technologies. CEO's Alex Karp was founded in 2003. It was co-founded by Peter Thiel, the gawker-killing, Trump-boosting, cyber-libertarian bogeyman, and named for a corrupted spying device from the Lord of the Rings. Palantir collects and analyzes data for government agencies, hedge funds, oh, they need good data, and pharmaceutical giants. Data, you may not be surprised to learn, is not always used for good. 
They noted that Google pulled out of its Project Maven contract with the U.S. government in 2018 after workers argued that the artificial intelligence program could allow the Pentagon to better target drone strikes. Palantir, whose CEO has repeatedly stressed that we're proud we're working with the U.S. government and that lofty decisions about the limits of surveillance tech should be made in, on Capitol Hill, not in Silicon Valley, happily snapped up the job. Now, Radio Parallax, a longtime listener, contacted me about a week or so ago to note that um, these recent revelations about Facebook were being discussed on Terry Gross's Fresh Air program, which I listened to, and it, it was interesting to talk about um, what they're aware of at, uh, at Facebook and, and have been studiously doing nothing about, despite the harm they do. That was interesting, but even more interesting was, was a program she'd done a couple days earlier discussing Peter Thiel and Palantir Technologies. I believe the interview on Fresh Air was with Max Chafkin, who has a recent, uh, recently published book about Peter Thiel. I know that by dumb luck I stumbled into a Commonwealth Club discussion with author Chafkin about Thiel. And this might be worth a slight diversion. Max Chafkin has said that Peter Thiel isn't the richest tech mogul, but he has in many ways been the most influential. To conservatives, he's become like Ayn Rand crossed with one of her fictional characters, a libertarian philosopher and a builder. And his political clout as a backroom dealmaker is growing. <clears throat> as a venture capitalist, Thiel made it his business to find up-and-comers, invest in their success, and then sell his stock when it was financial advantageous, when it was financially advantageous. Among his successful investments, by the way, Facebook. Chafkin said he did the same thing with Donald Trump, whom he backed beginning in May of 2016. Thiel's recommendations for White House appointees were often comically bad, but he wasn't playing for influence, he was playing for money and government contracts. And Palantir got many of them. In 2019, the Army chose Palantir over Raytheon for an $800 million defense contract. Despite limited experience, Palantir's even managed to get a $40 million slice of the Pentagon's high-profile Project Maven computer vision effort. Thiel has since turned his focus on getting two candidates, the author J.D. Vance and Thiel's aide Blake Masters, elected to the United States Senate in 2022. Both their platforms read like extensions of Thiel's worldview, potentially offering him greater influence than he had under Trump. The goal, as before, has been to keep America great for Peter Thiel. Although I had to laugh in a piece that was written about Palantir a year ago and appeared in The Week. It was a requote from the New York Times piece by Cade Metz, noting that the data analytics company Palantir filed papers in preparation for what could be the largest stock market listing of a venture-backed capital firm since Uber. At age 17, Palantir, one of the country's oldest, quote, startups, unquote, and Wall Street is still trying to figure out exactly what it does. Essentially, Palantir offers software that helps organizations make sense of vast amounts of data. Last year, Palantir moved its headquarters from Palo Alto to Denver and made a virtue of the cultural clash. They were reg it's been regarded with suspicion by much of Silicon Valley. Palantir and CEO Carp have responded by slamming the engineering elite for their hypocrisy. Well, actually, I'm sure there's plenty of that to go around. Anyway, we advise everyone, including you, dear listener, to keep an eye on Peter Thiel and Palantir Technologies. As well as the big three, like number three, Alphabet. Founded as Google in 1998, the current CEO is Sundar Pichai. They note that it's an internet giant that dropped its famous slogan in 2015. Its slogan was, don't be evil. <laughs> Mr. Winless suggested it may be rephrased now as, don't get caught being evil. Or perhaps... Don't be overly evil. 
It's been noted that founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin are sort of disappearing from the day-to-day management of Alphabet. Slate noted that like its peers at the top of the tech industry, Alphabet only seems to walk back from its more worrisome activities when someone, the press or its own employees, calls it out. Alphabet's workers derailed plans for a Pentagon drone AI program and a censored Chinese search engine, the kind of mercenary lines of business that might have seemed incompatible with Google's do-gooder image, at least as of a decade ago. Slate notes that Google has vast influence over the information economy, the media, advertising, and the mobile phone market, where its Android operating system makes it far more dominant than Apple. It knows more about us than Facebook, and it's moving into more and more areas we depend upon, like public health and urban planning, areas where it will always be incentivized to bring its chief business model to bear, selling our habits to advertisers. And how about the top two? Wouldn't you know it, Facebook comes in at number two and Amazon comes in at number one. Slate notes that Facebook's refusal to meaningfully alter the political advertising system that both President Donald Trump and Russian trolls used to their advantage in 2016 suggests that once again, one of the main areas of an ugly election suggests that once again, one of the main areas of an ugly election will be Facebook, which I think it's fair to say did take place last year in 2020. Oh, by the way, Remember those uh, smart glasses that Google tried to market a few years ago? They got people called glass holes. Well, they're back. Only now it's Facebook that's marketing glasses that can do things like take pictures of you and monitor what you're doing surreptitiously. They're being marketed as Ray-Ban Stories, the latest wearable smart glasses brought to you, well, by Facebook. These things cost $299. They house two cameras, two speakers, and three microphones, and a Snapdragon processor chip. Mr. McMillan points out that you can get such glasses even now, before, before, before Facebook got involved by going to your local spy store. I'm wearing some now. You are not, people. He is not. Aww. Anyway... Writing about this in BuzzFeedNews.com, Katie Natopoulos said there's a reason Facebook didn't put its name on this new product. It's clearly anticipating criticism about the creepiness of walking around wearing barely perceptible spy glasses. The only indication that someone is filming you is a small LED light in the corner of the frames that I could easily cover up with a piece of black tape. Facebook also tries to hedge against some of the concerns by walling off the prying eyes of Mark Zuckerberg, supposedly. Photos are sent to a separate app, which Supposedly, it requires a Facebook account to log into, but doesn't directly connect to your account. Well, that's reassuring. Carissa Bell writing in Engadget.com said, Still, it's Facebook, so privacy is the elephant in the room. Facebook says it won't mine your photos for targeted advertising, but a disclaimer reads that it will still collect data to, quote, personalize, unquote, your experience, including transcripts of voice commands. Nice! Yes, for those of you who want to take Alexa with you in your glasses. And then there's Amazon at number one. We can summarize the comments on Amazon by what one respondent had to say, which was, while other companies may be guilty of some of these, Amazon has, one, contributed to the death of local stores, services, journalism, music, community, etc. around the world. Two, focused on precarious and de-skilled labor with reportedly terrible working conditions. Three, supported police surveillance with its ring doorbells and surveillance more generally with Alexa devices. Four, racked up a massive carbon footprint with rapid shipping as well as cloud-based computing. 
Five, contributed tech to military and intelligence agencies with dubious human rights records, including U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. Five, failed to moderate what's on its platform, resulting in a glut of dangerous fakes, such as easily broken counterfeit car seats for children. Six, has a famously hostile workplace culture, which has been shown to contribute to harassment of women and minorities. And finally, number seven, evaded taxation with shady categorization of assets and offshore tax havens. Well, yeah, but he's having a great time on those suborbital flights, Jeff Bezos. Anyway, that's quite enough of that. Let's pause a moment and break things up like we used to do on this program with things like quotes, quips, stats, things like, you know, lighter fare. Starting with this quote from George Bernard Shaw, what really flatters a man is that you think him worth flattering. And this quip from the poet Billy Collins, if at first you don't succeed, hide all evidence that you ever tried. And this stat, which we may have used previously, but it's worth using again, apparently, according to the Harris Poll people, 17% of vaccinated Americans are keeping their vaccinations a secret from at least some people who would disapprove. And doggone it, let's do an episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a week or two ago, for weed enthusiasts with new data showing that as the labor shortage deepens in this country, some employers are waiving marijuana drug tests for job candidates. Attorney Brittany Robinson said society has caught up with the reality of smoking marijuana on your own time. But on the other hand, it was evidently a bad week for where you set the tipping point with the news that FBI recruiters have clarified that while, yes, the Bureau will now accept candidates who have smoked pot in the past, using marijuana more than 24 times after turning 18 years of age still is a disqualifier for FBI employment. Well, I've just counted them up, and it appears that since since I turned 18, I've, I've only smoked it 22 times. So I guess I can still apply for a position at the Bureau. It's good to know. And finally, I would have to note it was an ugly week this last week for women after the British medical journal The Lancet published an article on menstruation problems afflicting, quote, bodies with vaginas, unquote. After many readers with that type of body objected, editor-in-chief Richard Horton defended the omission of the word women as an attempt to achieve maximum inclusivity of all people, end quote except maybe women, which I think allows us to leapfrog into um, a look at, you know, wokeness. I got to say, as we've said before, that some of this stuff is just handing a club to reactionary elements to beat us with. Case in point, writing in nationalreview.com, Charles Cook noted that, that about a week ago, the ACLU tweeted a quote from the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This was ostensibly to celebrate her legacy on abortion rights, except the ACLU caved to the terminally woke, that's Mr. Cook's description, replacing her actual language, including, quote, the decision whether or not to have a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity, end quote, with a censored version. In this case, every mention of woman was changed to person, and every her was changed to their. 
notes Cook with some glee. This is an organization that once understood that even viewpoints widely considered odious deserve to be defeated in the marketplace of ideas, not with redaction tape. It now seeks to retroactively alter the speech of a public figure with whom it shares common cause to avoid offending those who deplore the idea that only women can have babies. Anyway, said Cook, all Americans should find this repugnant, but the ACLU? They should be setting their hair on fire. And although we cannot uh, comment one way or the other on the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, we do note that it, it was um, given a thumbs up by John McWhorter, writing from the, in the best book section of the week. McWhorter is a Columbia University professor and a contributor to The Atlantic. He noted that the authors of that book anticipated today's debates over wokeness. They wrote this in 2018. They noted that contemporary educational orthodoxy teaches kids three basic tenets. One, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Two, always trust your feelings. And three, life is a battle between good people and bad people. In our last couple of minutes, let's talk about tech companies. A piece by Megan McArdle in the Washington Post notes that woke capital is taking a pass on abortion. She notes that corporate America has been surprisingly mum on the Texas abortion matter. One corporate open letter began circulating last week with a few big names as signatories, including Lyft, but the letter mainly emphasizes that restricting abortion will be economically costly, preventing businesses from deploying the best possible workforce. That is a tepid response compared, for instance, to the roiling corporate backlash after Indiana passed a law letting businesses refuse customers under the cover of religious freedoms back in 2015. Salesforce swiftly boycotted Indiana, and more than 70 tech executives, including those from Microsoft, Netflix, and Intel, signed an open letter decrying the bill. That effort worked, and the law was revised to forbid discriminating against LGBTQ people. McArdle notes that abortion appears to be trickier. On this issue, CEOs are far less sure that they are swimming with the tide of public opinion, and abortion arouses negative associations that corporations are leery of attaching to their brands. It's not surprising so many have chosen to sit this one out. Even woke companies want to choose their battles with an eye on the bottom line. But back to language issues. Uh, The Economist uh, noted last month that you could use a single word as proxy, noting that Latinx is a general neutral adjective which only 4% of American Hispanics say they prefer. Yet in 2018, the New York Times launched a column dedicated to Latinx communities. I guess that's how you pronounce it, Latin Latin with an X at the end. It has crept into White House press releases and a presidential speech and a local paper, which I have here on my uh, tabletop, talking about a Latinx festival going on. Now, right or wrong, and maybe it's wrong, but, you know, right or wrong, Spanish uses the male version of a word to be inclusive of males and females. You know, like Latino means Latin men and women, whereas Latina refers only to Latin women. Can we just follow the Spanish language's lead on this? And a couple hours ago, I was looking at television, noting uh, that the Washington football team evidently prevailed today. They still haven't named the team. After, after, after chucking the name Washington Redskins, they have not settled on a name. Several years back, someone noted in NationalReview.com, again, an organization we don't generally agree with, they noted that someone forgot to tell actual Native Americans they needed to be outraged over the term Washington Redskins. A Washington Post poll found that 90% of Native Americans said they were not offended by the term Redskin. I don't know. When I worked with the Navajos down in New Mexico, which I did uh, some years back, 
I well remember one of the patients wearing a Washington Redskins jacket, rather proudly, it seemed. Now, I absolutely certain they did object to mascots labeled the bloodthirsty savages, but maybe not so much Redskins. I'm kidding. That's not a good joke, but uh, that's a good time to take a break. Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more to talk about. Too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard 